Hello and welcome to Unsourcewall. My name is Elvis and as always, I'm your host. Okay, so this is going to be kind of a fun one. A lot of things to go into. Let's just head right on in with movie news. There's somehow both a lot of news and almost no news. We have the regular amount of tiny promo behind the scenes picks for all these other kinds of movies but outside of that the one thing I really caught my eye was all these picks from the Birds of Prey movie but it's still nothing that the cast teaser video already didn't show. Just better looks at the really weird clothing and aesthetic they've been aiming for. I mean if you're going to have these characters dressed in an intentionally cheap and grounded style then go right on for it. But the way they're doing it looking both outlandish and cheap is way too much and it's just an obvious half measure and drags the intent all the way down with it. Next up was this deluge of rumors that began to be circulated that Army Hammer was just about to be announced as a new Batman for the DCEU. Everyone everywhere really ran with it. I admit that even I got on the action if only to just remind everybody that he was last cast as the character in George Miller's Just League Mortal movie and that if they were gonna get Hammer they should at least make that movie. The Barry death in the initial mortal pitch was perfect it was brilliant but it turned out to be complete bullshit and debunked by army hammer himself he waited a day or two to say though and i don't blame him because there's a lot of good press lastly and most interestingly is that apparently hugh jackman and patrick stewart have made it into the guinness book of world records and are tied for the record of longest roles as a marvel superhero starting off as their respective heroes in x-men 1 and in both retiring after logan which is pretty cool and i have to wonder if this isn't the real reason why Patrick Stewart hasn't been in Legion. He's just too kind to break this tie. I mean, that's gotta be it. Heading on to TV news, there's absolutely nothing of importance to real interest. The only thing is that apparently Eminem called out Netflix for canceling The Punisher, kind of showing how bad his taste in TV shows is, but also revealing just how few people knew about the Eminem Punisher crossover one shot. I mean, it's comic book history. Somewhere a comic about how Barracuda was downtown homies with Marshall Mathers needs to be framed. It's probably as shocking as comic book industry professionals not knowing about Mexican Spider-Man, and I was all too glad to remind people about that. Moving on into comic news, the big news this week is that rumors were circulating around that DC was going to be culling and cutting back on their whole line. The big number being that they're going to shorten everything to around 20 or so titles. Now the main purveyor of this rumor is Bleeding Cool, so grain of salt here. But it would be interesting to see that go down. I think the most likely event in this circumstance is just that a lot of mainline stuff is going to be the one staying around. But whatever helps I guess. Fingers crossed if it does come to pass that it's just not a 20 title wide Wonder Comics. I mean, imagine that. That would be way too much. And finally, the most exciting news right now is that Matt Fraction and Steve Lieber will be launching a Jimmy Olsen ongoing spinning out of Bendis' Hydra ripoff Superman arc. And wow, I'm of two minds about it. I've never been partial to Fraction, not at all really, but Lieber can definitely bring the ruckus. I have faith in that. So I really hope that Fraction's unbearable tendencies, to me at least, are on the low setting and that there's a lot of Lane family chaos. I just love Jimmy with all that Lane messiness and it's just not working for me if it doesn't have that. So fingers crossed. Now for what I read this week. First things first, let's start off with GoBots number four. This is still my favorite comics of the year and it's just an incredible riot to read. But this has to be the weakest issue so far and it's because it's so exemplary of all the 
flaws the series has had from the start. The panel to panel pacing is just so off and the stuff that is shuffled through between pages is jarring. It makes it messy to read and really hard to immerse into and engage with which is a shame because so far it has been doing a really good job at building up an engaging storyline with some real palpable drama. That previous foundation is what really keeps this issue afloat. That and some very astounding pages and set pieces especially some horrifying stuff with Cycle that was genuinely unnerving. Just wish it didn't feel like it was all hanging by a thread. A very very pulled apart thread at that. Still it sets up a lot for what could be a really great and fascinating finale. And I can't wait for it. I really can't. This has been such a delight. And it really did blow my preconception that this was heading toward a Planet of the Apes style storyline out of the water. It's clearly influenced by it, but no, it's it's going straight for something really unique and I am all there for it. Two thumbs up. Next up we have Sharky the Bounty Hunter number one. The new release from Mark Millar and the second that he's outright admitted were originally TV show pitches. Like that's somehow a switch from how he usually operates, right? But was it any better than the Magic Order? And the answer is both yes and no. The Magic Order, despite how terrible it was, actually had a few sublime pages and beats. Just some beautiful stuff, which made how far it fell that much more noticeable. Sharky? It aims for the middle and hits it consistently. It's a very simple premise and punctuated by a lot of simple beats, jokes, and little gags. It's not setting its sights on anything emotionally hardy or deathy, yet, but more or less just a breezy read. There's a tad more dimension in terms of characters that gives it the edge on snoozers like Huck and Chrononauts, but it's still nothing on Millar's higher skill set. But that's fine enough if it reaches what it wants to be, and it does. A few of the jokes land, and the precociousness of the plot, surly and crass bounty hunter has to take care of a now orphaned kid, remains unbroken. The only oddity really is that Millar makes a literal I identifies an attack helicopter character, and that's just really weird. Like, is he making that joke? Isn't he? Is he trying to be sincere about it? I have no clue and it is just outlandish to see inserted into this especially since his new MO is to be heartwarming and to have something that references that kind of joke is strange. It really is. Still, the series does start off on a good enough foot that it could be a good time if it keeps its head about it. I don't expect much but I'll stick with it. One thumb up, one thumb middle. Next up, we have Naomi number two. Now I think I had to read this just after how baffling the first issue was. And well, to its credit, it's actually a lot more understandable. Does that mean it's any better or any more coherent? Not at all. It's just a lot more dumbed down and blatant where the overarching plot is concerned. It pretty much just stops in its tracks to state what's going on when that rears its head. The rest of the issue is still just a Bendis haze. And he even found a time to fit in that thing he did in Superman number one. That really terrible creative choice where he would punctuate shit with a double page spread that feels more like having whiplash and making the reading experience insanely disorienting. All of that is a wash and when it tries to be intimate and slow, it's still full up on inane and mind-boggling dialogue. I don't even know what he's thinking about when he's doing that. Anyway, this issue reveals Naomi's big secret. She's a warrior princess. Her mom was a warrior queen and she ended up on earth as a baby. The end. Big whoop. Turns out the town mechanic was a royal bodyguard. And the sad thing about that is that usually I could be kind of into that. It's not a bad setup and it could be a fun premise, but it's just not and I don't really think there's going to be any more twists to Naomi's backstory that will make this more enticing when the writing itself is already such a drawback. One thumb middle, one thumb down. And lastly we have The Wild Storm number 20, which is a pretty great issue. It is definitely not as thorough on the plot as I had hoped, but the issue does excel with John Davis Hunt's action scenes because this issue is entirely focused on these action scenes and he pulls them off immaculately. 
while there have been some issues with John Davis Hunt's art in terms of perspective, there has never been anything he's fired on with more cylinders in this series than the action, which has always been impressive. It is truly spectacular, and we get to see Apollo and Midnighter go all out. They are just really entertaining, and I love them, and I love how they are in this reboot. There are some important beats in this issue that I hope get new development. So yeah, I don't really think that there's going to be much they can do other than all collide and then lead off into whatever is the mainline title after this. I think this was a really spectacularly fun issue, but in terms of plotting, we are in the crunch time, and that is a very tense and fragile balance. Either way, I really prepare myself for this to end all on a huge cliffhanger because that's exactly what it's setting up for. So yeah, one thumb up, one thumb middle. And overall, it was a pretty interesting week in terms of releases, and I don't regret any of it. Moving on into what I watched this week, we have the seventh episode of Gotham's final season, this time called Ace Chemicals. Now, this was just a classic Gotham one-and-done episode. It could have easily fit into the show's heyday, a solid A-plot and a fun, wacky B-plot. We have Joker leading Bruce on his path, which we hopes will solidify their bond, and Catwoman and Penguin doing wacky hijinks while trying to escape the city. Each part carries its own weight and is just some serious fun. Cameron Monaghan has been used so well by this show, and this big episode allows them to pull out all the stops with him, especially with a set piece that has him film his own version of the Mark of Zorro with him as Zorro, and it it hits me that it's such a perfectly Joker gag to do. And it's brilliant. With Catwoman and Penguin, it's all gag focused. It's like a slapstick comedy. Both tones complementing each other in a way that only Gotham can pull off. From the outset even, we're hit right in the face with this tumultuous and inane Gordon melodrama, which is just side splitting. And it even caps off the episode's final scene too. It's clear they wanted this to hit a stride and with the series as a whole. And it works. They hit that mark immediately. While I wish that it was more of a rolling episode like this season should be focusing on, I can't hold it against it when the rest of it is just simply solid. If I had any complaints, it would be that the Ace Chemical stuff itself is a bit undersold. It just kind of bluntly happens after all this build-up and an even decent fight scene. I guess it doesn't make sense to make such a big deal when he's already the Joker, but still, the imagery peters out. It's a really fun episode overall, and Joker ending up poisoning Gotham with giant chemical concoction could be really exciting for these last few episodes. The next episode itself is promising some sort of proto-killer croc, and even Clayface pulling off some gender-bending shenanigans. I mean, I am all in. Fingers crossed that it nails that landing, because this season is finally picking up speed. Two thumbs up. Next up, we have the second episode of Doom Patrol, episode 2, titled Donkey Patrol. This was just a riot of an episode. There's really no doubt about it. This series has landed on its feet with an episode that is worthy of that pilot. I mean really, with pilots, good pilots, there's usually a downtick in quality. Making a pilot fit into something you have to budget out weekly can be a harrowing process. This weathers that. Now I won't lie, there is a distinct difference in terms of the visuals. The pilot was very smooth and incredibly stylish. This tries its best, but where it succeeds, where it counts, in terms of the tone, the characters, and the emotional impacts, all are riding as high as it did. So while you have set pieces where the ruins of the town end up looking like a very slap together set on some dusky canyon backlot, Frasier and the rest of the cast continue to bring it like no one else's business. Frasier, despite having some incredibly heavy scenes, especially with Crazy Jane, doesn't even crowd out the other characters this time. Rita and Larry are played with perfection in equally interesting character beats. With Rita, it's generally more setup, but it's still haunting and engaging setup, and I can't wait to see the actress do more of it, because even a few moments here and there were chilling. Larry, voiced by Matt Bomer, and 
physically acted by Matthew Zuck are electric. Zuck as the suit actor is as magical, if not more, than Robot Man's suit actor. There's this brilliant sequence where Larry keeps on being fucked over by the negative spirit and Zuck sells this very slapsticky scene to perfection. Just all this bumbling, falling, and stumbling around is hysterical. I loved it. It was wonderful. I think the only odd man out this time is Cyborg. Crazy Jane, she's more or less the same. But the deafier stuff of Robot Man helps her keep afloat even more this time. Cyborg though, it's less about how he's written because he's written really well. But his actor is just kind of off tone most of the time. His line readings are at points baffling and really unconvincing. Everyone else is giving it their all and I wonder if this is the best the guy can do. The character is used well, written entertainingly, but the acting hinders it when it's meant to be very emotionally focused at points. The one thing I think is really interesting about Cyborg though is the implication that he's just a meat puppet for his dad's programming and that the real Vic Stone died. Now if they actually continue to develop that, that could be really engaging and I hope the actor is able to step it up for that. I really do. The Chief is out of commission for pretty much the entire episode but is seen very lovingly through the eyes of Cyborg and Dalton exerts a real warmth. I wonder, hope even, that they keep it real and not just facade because Dalton is definitely a powerhouse in those scenes. Overall though, it was just a fun episode. A little slower and a little more spread out in terms of visuals and tones, but it still worked great. Mr. Nobody even becomes more of a distinct and disturbing threat, even as the narration gets more and more outlandish, which is a great analogy for this series as a whole so far. Plus apparently the cockroach from the trailer ends up being just a regular caulking religious dialect cockroach and okay, <laughs> that was great. Like I did not see them playing that completely straight, but they did and it was wonderful and Wow, everyone was just on form of this and I couldn't be happier. Can't wait for next week. Two thumbs up. And so we head on to listener questions and we actually have a couple this week. Let's start off with the ever incredible Illuminated. If you want to check out their work, I have the links below. So check them out. They're all worth it. Especially Damn Comics, Hero Maker. Now just check it out. But their question for this week is... What is my opinion on TKO and their current lineup? Honestly, I think TKO is pretty interesting. Now, putting aside my thoughts and their lineup for a second, TKO, I think, is really putting in the work in getting all these creators and getting this variety of genres, setups, premises, aesthetics, and tones all together in one place. They're definitely not pigeonholing themselves in any kind of way, and this whole strategy of offering everything off the bat, trades, digital, and free teases all in one place is pretty astounding, and it's actually very kind of personable and I think it's really drawing a lot of attention which is great and I think that well good on them. Their second wave has a lot of creators and well conceits that I'm really interested in so I can't wait till those come out and I hope that they continue or at least relatively continue to be as outgoing as broad and as diverse as they possibly can be in terms of the stories that they're soliciting because it would be a shame to start out with a war comic, a pulp comic, a grounded drama and a western and then start kind of funneling out a lot of things. No, I feel like you have to keep on moving forward. So that's what I like about TKO in general. As for their current lineup, they have, I think they're still on their first wave of four books. Now, I already did reviews for their first issues of Sarah and Goodnight Paradise. Sarah was the clear winner there, being a lot more effective and concise and focused, while Goodnight Paradise felt very disassociated and dispersed, even with its own plot. It was just so aimless and muddled, yet neither really spoke out to me in a huge way. Sarah was as skilled a war comic as Ennis has ever done, but maybe it's just on me for not feeling the same level of pathos for the first issue. Still, it definitely made my to-read list because it had some impressive moments in all meanings of that word. 
For this question, I decided to check out the other two first issues from the first wave, and I kind of found the same situation, but more optimistic. Seven Deadly Sins, the Western, is the aimless mess this time around, just overstuffed ideas and having no real cohesive tether to any of them. It's like reading a railroad crash of set pieces, each scrambling to be the one on top, and it's just kind of boring. The kind of boring that comes from something that really wants to be stylish, exciting, and funny. It never reaches any of them, so that's a hard pass. The fearsome Dr. Fang though? Absolutely delightful. A pulpy story set at the turn of the 20th century and he revels in it without feeling too mired in homage or too anachronistic of modern cliches. The main character is a slam Bradley type who ends up weighing over his head in his pursuit of this enigmatic orient styled villain. It's pretty great. Each sequence is played to the hilt with the right amount of earnestness while also being cognizant of what it has to twist around to feel fresh and lively. It breathes the old school plot stylings but definitely maneuvers around and retrofits the unfortunate associations. To great effect, it's kind of the book that Seven Deadly Sins wishes it could be. Humorous, adventurous, self-aware, but with the right dash of cynicism. It's a potent combination and already working in the first issue. So that is a must buy when I get the cash for sure. And yeah, their current lineup isn't the best. Maybe Goodnight Paradise got better, but I don't see Seven Deadly Sins turning itself around. But at least this first wave has some shining stars in there too. And even for something that's spotty, it at least shows that creators are doing their own thing and they're reveling in it. Which is worth some appreciation. And I can't wait to see what the second wave brings. And I have the fullest faith in TKO to make something that I didn't expect to see. Two thumbs up for the Pearson Dr. Fang, two thumbs down for Seven Deadly Sins. And so I hope I answered your question as thoroughly as I could, eliminated, and that you have a great experience whenever you decide to check out TKO. Our next question comes from the great Aki Cat on Twitter, and their question was, what would be my dream plot for a Looney Tunes crossover with any celebrity of my choice? And, well, my dream crossover would have to be something outrageous. Like, I haven't ever thought about it, but it needs to be something strange and unbelievable. So I'm going to say Gossamer and Dennis Rodman in a movie that purposely riffs and parodies Double Team, that buddy adventure movie that starred Dennis Rodman and Jean-Claude Van Damme. Just for the hell of it, I need to see that hairy giant play the straight man to Rodman with bleach blonde hair. I would die of astonishment. Like, this is the only thing in my mind now. I can see it clearly right now, and I am disappointed that it doesn't exist already. So yeah, I hope that answered your question satisfactorily, Aki Cat. And our final question comes in the form of a listener recommendation from Iridella, hope I said that right, on the comics Discord I'm a part of. And their recommendation was the Aftershock comic Volition by Ryan Parrott and Omar Francia. Now, Volition is actually a pretty decent book. It's not something I would ever picked up on my own, not really seeking out robot sentience books, but I don't mind that I did. It's a simple worn premise, but it's done competently and with a sincere belief in its story. They know what they want to create, and they're not being held back by how familiar every single beat of this all is, which I can get behind. The story is cross-pollinated from all sorts of different things, but I just can't hate on it for what it is because it's still so well assembled. And why not? For a story about robot sentience and them trying to lead lives, it's well done, with entertaining characters, scenes, and plot threads, knowing when to be ludicrous and when to play the characters for some emotional weight. It's just doing a good job staying afloat. My only real complaint would be that the art switches back and forth. I know it's just one artist, but for a second there, I thought that the art had been passed over to other people, but apparently it didn't. So I'm just shocked and confused as to how the art can really change over the course of four issues. It's kind of ridiculous. The first issue has this really stoic art. The second issue has 
has a little bit more fluid, but still kind of stoic art. And then the third issue is outright cartoony. They're all okay, but the tones and mannerisms just clash hard. And I'm wondering what's going through Francia's head here. Is he getting bored of the art style from the first issue? Is he still working things out? Does he not know what tone he wants to set for the series? I am in disarray about this, just as much as this comic itself is in disarray. But not minding that, I have to say I'll definitely stay on with the series because I am a bit invested in the unfolding drama already. Sue me. <laughs> I'll give it one thumb up, one thumb middle. And I hope it sticks a landing for however long it runs. I'm not quite sure. Is this a mini? I know that some Aftershock comics have like a season one, season two kind of deal. But whatever the length, I hope that it doesn't do anything stupid. And there are definitely a lot of ways this can head right on into stupid territory. So fingers crossed. So thank you for that recommendation, Imadella. I had a really great time with it. And I just want to thank everyone out there who sent in questions, comments, or feedback. It means so much to me. It means so much every week. And it's something that I am incredibly grateful and humbled by. So yeah, it really does keep the show going. And if you have your own questions, comments, or thoughts, you can always check me out online on Twitter at T-H-E underscore S-N-I-C-K-M-A-N. And I also want to give a shout out to the cover artist for the series at D-O-T-E-M-C-E-E. -E -E. Please check them out. They're really brilliant and they deserve the traffic. They really do. Anyway, that's it for the end of this episode. Hope that next week has a lot of great releases and I hope that you have a great week. So yeah, see you then.